Maundy Thursday has its name because of Jesus' commandment. Maundy being a word that means mandate, which is to command. Jesus gives us a new commandment, and we just heard it. Love one another. This is his instruction to his disciples as he prepares them for what is to come, which they do not comprehend. They can hardly conceive it. In fact, I would say they don't conceive it when they're sitting at table with Jesus, as we've just heard in the scripture tonight. But he prepares them for his leaving by giving them the instructions to love one another. I have a clergy friend who's retired now from parish ministry, and she told people when they would take up the topic of tithing, she said, look, this is the easiest spiritual discipline. Compare tithing to forgiveness. Wouldn't you rather sometimes just write a check? (laughs) Jesus' commandment to love one another seems easy enough. We can remember it. I've seen it on a t-shirt. Surely that's enough to make it accessible. But the command is a challenge. Love one another. You might remember that I shared a little bit about Teresa of Lisieux in a service a few weeks ago. A woman who lived in France and was a part of the Carmelite order in the late part of the 1800s. If you remember, she was sainted in the early 1900s, just 25 years after her death, for the sole purpose of her ability to love people. That was the miracle of her life. She wrote extensively about that and considered herself a little flower in God's kingdom. And I want to share with you something that she wrote about the observation she made about the people who followed Jesus. Because it occurred to her that not everyone was all saintly. And we can even remember that when we consider the disciples' feet that Jesus washed. He washed Judas's feet, the one who would betray him. He washed Peter's feet, the one who would deny him. He washed Matthew's feet, the one who was a tax collector. He washed all of their feet, knowing that they would disappear into the crowd less than 24 hours later. I think that Jesus did know that the commandment to love one another is difficult. And yet he loved all people. He loved them to the end. Therese was reflecting on this. How is it that some people's lives happen in Christ in a glorious way and others in a not-so-glorious way? What sense might she make of this? And she writes, Jesus saw fit to enlighten me about this mystery. He set the book of nature before me, and I saw that all the flowers he has created are lovely. The splendor of the rose And the whiteness of the lily do not rob the little violet of its scent, nor the daisy of its simple charm. I realized that if every tiny flower wanted to be a rose, spring would lose its loveliness, and there would be no wild flowers to make the meadows gay. It is just the same in the world of souls, which is the garden of Jesus. He has created the great saints who are like the lilies and the roses, but he has also created much lesser saints, And they must be content to be the daisies or the violets which rejoice his eyes whenever he glances down. 
Perfection consists in doing his will, in being that which he wants us to be. Perfection consists in doing his will, in being that which he wishes us to be. Jesus gave us the commandment for perfection, that we love one another. Those were his instructions to his disciples. If they could remember that commandment and carry it out, they would be prepared for his leaving. They would be prepared for the chaos that would follow in the next 24 hours. If they could carry out the commandment to love one another, they would also be prepared for a life with him because Jesus loves all. It is indeed a challenge to love one another. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote about that in his piece entitled Strength to Love, noting that love calls out of us big things and requires us to be sustained in order to offer it because we cannot offer love from ourselves. It's too demanding. We can only offer the love of Christ. In his piece called Strength to Love, he writes about loving our enemies. <coughs> Probably no admonition of Jesus has been more difficult to follow than the command to love your enemies. Some people have sincerely felt that its actual practice is not possible. It's easy, they say, to love those who love you, but how can one love those who openly and insidiously seek to defeat you? Others, like the philosopher Nietzsche, contend that Jesus' exhortation to love one's enemies is testimony to the fact that the Christian ethic is designed for the weak and cowardly and not for the strong and courageous. Jesus, they say, was an impractical idealist. In spite of these insistent questions and persistent objections, this command of Jesus challenges us with new urgency. Upheaval after upheaval has reminded us that modern humanity is traveling along a road called hate in a journey that will bring us to destruction and damnation. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, the command to love one's enemy is an absolute necessity for our survival. Love, even for enemies, is the key to the solution of the problems of our world. Jesus is not an impractical idealist. He is a practical realist. Jesus loved his enemies. Judas, his betrayer. Peter, the one who would deny him those that would scatter when life got hard. And these were his closest friends that had been with him day in and day out for close to three years. It is not easy to love. Martin King goes on to say, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. It is the lifting of a burden or the canceling of a debt. The words, I will forgive you, but I'll never forget what you've done, never explain the real nature of forgiveness. Certainly one can never forget if that means erasing it totally from his mind. But when we forgive, 
We forget in the sense that the evil deed is no longer a mental block impeding a new relationship. Likewise, we can never say, I will forgive you, but I won't have anything further to do with you. Forgiveness means reconciliation, a coming together again. Without this, no one can love his enemies. The degree to which we are able to forgive determines the degree to which we are able to love our enemies. And doesn't Jesus demonstrate this with his disciples? He forgives them knowing what will happen. He says at the table, one of you will betray me. He tells Peter, you will deny me. And yet he offers them forgiveness. Before the events unfold, he takes them unto himself, saying to his disciples, if you want to be a part of me, you will let me wash your feet. If you want to be a part of what God is doing, you will follow me. Martin King goes on to say, let us move now from the practical how to the theoretical why. Why should we love our enemies? The first reason is fairly obvious. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is setting forth a profound and ultimately inescapable admonition. Have we not come to such an impasse in the modern world that we must love our enemies or else? The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, must be broken or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. Jesus prepares his disciples for life without him. He tells them, love one another. Whatever happens in the next few days, love one another. And by preparing his disciples, he prepares them for life with him, one with the Father, because God has love for all people. Amen.